If you turn to Daniel chapter 2, Daniel 2, as we finish up the third installment of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we sang about the great I am. King Nebuchadnezzar is about to see exactly how powerful the great I am is. And in fact, as we pick up the story of Daniel's life, he's writing of a time that's 605 B.C., and so Babylon is in power. But prior to Babylon, you had the Assyrians, and the Assyrians came and actually took captive the children of Israel as well. And in fact, really all that was left in the southern kingdom was the kingdom uh, that we would know as Judah. Israel, the northern tribes, have been taken captive, and, and ostensibly they were really pretty much wiped out. And so you have Judah in the south, which would contain also the Levitical tribe. There's a smattering uh, of all of the tribes of the children of Israel, so there's some remnant of all of them. Um, but by the time Daniel writes, they're in captivity in Babylon. The year is 605. The ruling kingdom is the kingdom uh, that is now headed by this young king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we have the opportunity to look back with hindsight at world history. And so the question becomes, is Daniel would have given this word of prophetic uh, implications going forward in human history, uh, Nebuchadnezzar would not have had the viewpoint that we have, but we do have it. And so we can look back and we can see that as this dream unfolds, as we're going to look at tonight, and as we look at the rest of Scripture in light of this passage, we're going to see that Daniel is describing uh, a series of kings and a series of kingdoms. The first one he names, and he says, and we saw this last week, you are the head of gold. And so the head of gold is King Nebuchadnezzar, and the kingdom is that of Babylon. And so it becomes very clear from proper biblical interpretation that the remainder of these kingdoms that are going to be listed are, are going to be in sequence. They will be in order because Daniel says, after you, King Nebuchadnezzar, another kingdom shall rise. And so we are going to see the world's kingdoms. They're going to be spelled out uh, in, in some degree and measure as to what those kingdoms would look like. And then we can compare them to the history of the world and see if this dream that is interpreted by Daniel actually is true. And more importantly, was it prophetic in the time that Daniel wrote it? And I think we're going to see not only was it prophetic, but it came true exactly as he said it would, and a portion of it is still yet to be, in essence, revealed to us, because Daniel speaks of a time at the end of this uh, dream that is, to some degree, still yet future to us tonight, because he's going to speak of the end of what we would call the kingdom age or the age of grace. And so would you join me? We'll pick up actually in verse 39 uh, reminding yourself that we finish with verse 38. You are the head of gold, and so we'll pick up in verse 39. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the encouragement that your word is to us. Lord, that you would bother uh, to write in 605 BC these words through Daniel, that they would be kept over the centuries and millennia, so that we could look back on it and remind ourselves that you, the King of Heaven, uh, gave word about what would transpire in the successive generations 
that would follow after this king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, that you would want us to know that you are the God of heaven and you alone could have known the future. Uh, and so God, it helps us to, to put our faith, our hope, and our trust in you, the revealer of these things. You are, I am. And we declare that tonight as we study your word. Speak to us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 39, but after you, so you can underline that, after you, remember he's already said, you, O king, are the head of gold. So your kingdom, during those days and times, uh, the king and the kingdom were virtually synonymous. And so if you mentioned the king, the king was the king of a kingdom. And so if you mentioned Babylon, that would be the same as mentioning Nebuchadnezzar. If you mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, that would be the same as mentioning Babylon. They were not able to be pulled apart. Uh, un unlike the Roman Caesars that were not necessarily going to rule over the entirety of the Roman Empire during this time, very specifically, uh, and that was true with the Assyrian Empire, the king and the kingdom uh, was known together, the Babylonian Empire, the king and the kingdom known together. And so it begins, but after you shall rise another kingdom that is inferior to yours. And again, we know the history of these things because we can look back in hindsight and we know what kingdom followed next, uh, not only historically, but also biblically. And so another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze. Uh, and again, we'll go through these things in, in some detail tonight. And these kingdoms, and it's interesting because the way this is written, remember we're in the part that's written in in uh, Aramaic, so it would be the language of, of after the captivity so that they would understand it, which shall rule over all the earth. And so these naming world kingdoms, and remember that the world, unlike today, if you were to say there was a world kingdom, that would be the entirety of the globe. The world, that was not the world kingdom that was being spoken of here. It was the civilized world, the world that they would have known at that time would have been roughly what we would call the Middle East. And so with that king and those kingdoms would rule over all the earth. And a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. Inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. And so you can see that there is a kingdom. Those kingdoms are successive. They will come one right after another. And, and he's reminding us exactly what will happen to these successive kingdoms. And whereas you saw the feet and toes, partially of potter's clay and partly of iron. Now he's referring back. Remember, he gave him the dream. He's giving him now the interpretation of it. The kingdom shall be divided. And so he begins to give characteristics that we can look back on. And again, with hindsight and say, what, what actually came after the Babylonian Empire, what actually came after the Media Persian Empire, what came after the Greek Empire, what came after the Roman Empire, and, and what still lies ahead in our future. And so he says, that kingdom shall be divided, and yet the strength of the iron shall be in it. In other words, there's going to be a, a little bit of toughness in it. Just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. And one of the things that we'll look at is, is the history of the world in relationship to its governments and how strong those governments are in relationship to the number of people governed. 
the larger a kingdom gets, the weaker it gets politically. Because in case you haven't noticed, we, we can't get, uh, say, 100 senators to agree on much of anything. Amen? Uh, not, at least not right now. I'm not sure we ever have been able to do that. But the larger a governing body gets, the more disassociated the parts are, the more individualistic it becomes, and thereby the weaker it actually becomes, though there is some strength in it, because there's strength in democracy. There's strength in people governing people. And so we're going to look at some of these things that are mixed into this mix of world empires, if you will. And so as you saw it, it's going to be partly strong, partly fragile. And as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. In other words, of men, these governments shall be. There will be portions of these kingdoms that will be partly governed by men themselves, not just simply a ruler. The seed of men meaning mankind in that context. And so as you look going forward, if you know anything about world history, in Babylonian times, there was a single ruler and that ruler had nearly autonomy single authority what the king decreed and we're going to see it in the following chapters but as mankind progresses it's like yeah that's not such a great idea and so we'll see what the world looks like as we move through these kingdoms but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay And so he's giving us some conditions, some things that we can look at in world history and see if this dream was actually correctly prophesied. And in the days of the kings of the God of heaven, he will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all of these kingdoms. Of course, I think we can all realize which kingdom that actually is. There's one kingdom that's greater than all the other kingdoms, and that kingdom does break in pieces all of the other kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. And there's your link to eternity. So we know that this is a kingdom that in Daniel's time was yet to come. But in our time, because it involves the remnants of these other kingdoms, uh, we know that at least in some way that kingdom will have begun. Inasmuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, remember there was a giant stone that's going to come down and crush that broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. So Daniel plainly states that this is prophetic. This is what the world is going to look like after you, King Nebuchadnezzar. These are the things that you can expect. And of course, he would not be alive to see all these things. But the reason those words are important is that if there's any part of this prophetic lineage of kingdoms that does not come true, then the entirety of it is not true. So if there's any part of this that, that one could say, well, that never happened, then, then one could conclude that Daniel didn't hear from God, whatever God that was, if there is a God, that God either doesn't exist or he doesn't know anything and everything. And he says, just to make sure we understand it, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. And so Daniel stakes his life on the fact that what he is saying is absolutely true. 
And so when you look at the Near Eastern people, they always regarded their kings and kingdoms, kingdoms as synonymous. And so because we're told, and remember that the primary rule of interpretation, the, the rule of first mention, anytime something is mentioned for the first time in Scripture, it is the basis for which you identify that truth elsewhere in Scripture. And so we're told that point blank here in this passage. It's also true in the rest of the Old Testament. Whenever there was a king, if you identified, for instance, uh, any of the great kings of Assyria, at the time of the kings of Assyria, whoever the king was, that was also how the kingdom was identified. And so this is true. And as you look at these these kingdoms, and, and again, we'll just, for the sake of understanding, um, these kingdoms, by the identified metal with which they're associated, are in orders of decreasing specific gravity, in other words, molecular weight. Uh, the image of gold, the molecular weight for that, is, or its specific gravity is 19. Uh, silver is about 11. Bronze is 8.5. Iron, 7.8. So if you look at them, they descend in their weight. In other words, the, their, their ability uh, to be dense, and they also decrease uh, in their value. Gold is much more valuable than iron. And so you can kind of see that these kingdoms, though they are going to get larger physically, um, they are going to become less and less important as far as the density of the human population. So as the human population goes up, the centrality of the leadership and its power is actually going to go down, and, and the actual value of the kingdom itself will go down. Now, you could say that the Roman Empire, because at one point in time governed all the way from about Scotland uh, all the way down to about the center of North Africa and all the way over to India, uh, though it was much larger, you, you would say, well, that would have a tremendous land value to it. If you look at the way the Romans governed, the Romans governed, in essence, very much peaceably once they established that they were the ruler of a specific region. In fact, that was part of how they governed. They brought the Roman peace. They brought roads. They brought water. And so they made people happy so that the military they initially used they did not need to continue to do that. And so this list is really the world empires moving forward from King Nebuchadnezzar's time in descending order. So those of you that are used to using Microsoft Excel or some other, some other program that creates a spreadsheet, you know at the top of that there's always a little button where you can click ascending or descending order. Well, we just click descending order on this particular list. And so as we look at that, the head of gold absolute authority of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever he said, remember his edict was, anyone who does not do this dies. So he had the authority over the entirety of the kingdom and everyone in it to, in essence, rule by his decree that whatever he said, that's how it would go. When you move to the next empire, because it said there will be one that will be less than you, following after you, Media Persian, we're going to see Cyrus the Mede is going to come on the scene. We're actually going to uh, get to meet him. Uh, they were limited to their, strictly to their decrees. The rule then sprang from a group of nobles that were uh, kind of co-regents or, or powerful uh, individuals. So in essence, one could say that it was more like an oligarchy. Uh, and, and so their style of rulership and leadership was a little less valuable at the top, it involved more people and more people were engaged in ruling the world at that time. If you move to the Greek empire, which would have been the next empire, remember what he said, he said these empires are gonna come one right after another. The bronze belly, that had military heads. 
And so if you know anything about the Bronze Age and the implementation of bronze weapons, bronze weapons were the deciding factor at that period of time. If you had bronze weapons, uh, you were superior to anyone else on the face of the earth. Bronze is largely believed to have been invented, to have been invented rather uh, by the Egyptians, but really nobody had mass-produced weapons uh, until the Greeks came on the scene. And so the bronze leadership Um, Because it was largely militaristic, if you look at the Greek Empire, especially the empire that was ruled by Alexander the Great, um, basically he ruled with military might. And so they had a ruling elite, and in fact his empire would be divided up ultimately on his death to four of his generals, and they would have two very specific places from which they would rule. And so you can kind of see how these things play out in world history. The Iron Legs, it's easy to see. Uh, that that is Rome. Rome was known as the Iron Empire. Uh, Virtually anything and everything that could be made out of iron was made out of iron, including weapons. uh, You had all kinds of uh, agricultural implements. Uh, The rims to their chariots were now covered with iron, so they would uh, last much longer. And so that's what allowed them to spread out into such a large geographic area. They now had mass-producible military uh, power that was ruled by an empire. If you know anything, again, about history, the Roman Senate uh, kind of worked a little bit similar to our own style of government. You have a Caesar, which has way too much power, but the Roman Senate, in essence, had some power too. They would vote on those things. Um, they They would write a decree. The decree would go to Caesar, and Caesar would proclaim it to be true. And so you had, in essence, in that time, you had imperialism. So the rise of imperialism uh, during ancient Roman times. So you, you had really a, a, a ruling class of people that was also in some ways attached to the people themselves. People from specific provinces would be elected to the Roman Senate. They might be people of power, people of wealth, people of status in society. And so the upper crust uh, of the people, in essence, got a hand in ruling uh, the, the Roman kingdom. And so as Daniel is seeing these things, and he's saying these things to King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar is only going to last long enough to see the next kingdom, uh, and, and barely at that. And that's, that's going to be uh, Media Persia. But the interesting thing that comes up, and we're just going to ref- refer to it as the revived Roman Empire from, from here on out, mostly in our study, is this goes from iron legs to feet mixed of iron and clay. And, and as he describes this here, and we kind of looked at it as you, as you think about it, okay, you've got the people are going to be engaged in it. They're not going to stick together. Anybody know anything about the way the world is governed right now? Um, try and get a couple of countries to make, um, let's say, a trade agreement like the United States and China. Who does China look after? China. Who does the United States look after? The United States, which, by the way, you would expect that. And, and the same is true for Europe. And so with the forming of the EU and, and with the formation of the World Bank and the World Court, uh, the G8 formerly, now the G7, all these global institutions... We are now approaching this time when the world actually is to some degree, at least partially, governed globally. And the reason this is important is because you'll notice that there are some toes designed here, or toes that are spoken of. 
we're going to find out when we read the book of Revelation that there are ten toes. We're also going to find out that there are ten horns that speak for those ten toes. And so it's, it's, giving, it's giving us a little clue that these are going to be consortiums of nations that are going to get together that are not going to completely gel what's going on in Britain right now. Great Britain is going through exiting, in essence, the, 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 the economy of the EU, the Brexit thing. Why that's important is this. Your Bible says that in the very last days in this kingdom that is going to come together in the last days that will not actually gel all that well, there are going to be parts of it that are going to not like what everybody else is doing, but they're going to, for the sake of a globalized government, kind of come together on some things. Uh, And we're going to look at that in, in a little bit more detail in just a moment. But as you move through these, these kingdoms and you look at the way that they're described here, gold was the standard of Babylon. So if you look back at Babylonian history, virtually anything of value was made out of gold. Silver was the standard for the media Persian Empire. Virtually everything they, they had that was precious made out of silver. The Greek military was known for its bronze implements and iron was used by Rome's military. And so we can see that somehow, because it was the God of gods that spoke, that that God gave Daniel enough information that we could look at our history. Uh, When Nebuchadnezzar dreamed this dream, media Persia uh, was really not that great a threat to Nebuchadnezzar. They were adjacent neighbors, much like you would look at Iran and Iraq today. And that's the rough geographic location of those two things. Uh, in Iraq, you would have had Babylon at the time on the plains of Dura, uh, which is also, by the way, the same basic location of the Ur of Chaldees. And so this is what we call the Fertile Crescent. It's there uh, in the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley. Um, very fertile region, and so this this region uh, kind of gave birth to civilization. So when we look at uh, these particular nations, nation states, if you will, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is probably going, eh, I'm not so worried about you know this kingdom that's adjacent to me that's you know worried about silver. I mean, after all, we've got gold. Gold is more precious. Gold is more valuable. It was at that time, and it would remain so. Greece was barely even on the, the radar at that point in time. If you had said that the, you know, the, the, the great armies of Sparta were going to rise up and somehow come against the Medes and the Persians and defeat them, everybody would have gone, no, you're crazy. You, you mean those guys over there are, you know, Macedonia? They're gonna, no, it's not going to happen. And, and if you looked at what we would call Rome today, there was a little tiny village on the edge of the Tiber River that was known as Rome. And it was about as far out of the way as anybody could get. And it absolutely was not a military power. And it was a threat to no one. So Daniel got this information uh, in, in a way that when, when the king started to think about it for a second, you can imagine when he start to saw, starts to see uh, the rise of his neighbor, Media Persia. And, and if you look at the years that these individual empires existed, uh, Babylon, very short, it was 66 years, and it was gone, off the scene. Media Persia would, would, would last for roughly 209 years, and then it would disappear. And so you can see they got longer and longer and longer, about 267 years for Greece. Uh, the great Alexander, Alexander the Great, comes on the scene 
By the time he's 32 years old, he's conquered most of the known world. And so again, lasts for a period of time. And then comes Rome, and this is the important part. Because we still have today a little bit uh, of the leftover, if you will, uh, of that Roman rule from that Roman period of time. And we can see it all over Europe. There's one thing when you travel to Europe that you will notice. The European continent was predominantly ruled by the Romans through the Roman version of Christianity. So you, you have Christianity comes on the scene. Uh, Constantine makes it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire, by, by in essence, a, a caveat, by speaking it so, says that, okay, if you're part of the Roman Empire, you're also going to be part of the Roman religion. So you have the blending of state and religion. Interestingly enough, what's one of the first things that was enshrined here in this country? That we would never blend state and religion. There, there is built into our system of government a, a separation of those two things, not because the Christians weren't supposed to be involved in government, but there was an inherent danger when you had the church and the state linked together because eventually one of those two things would rule the other. And so we separated them out. But the rest of the world, the church has had tremendous influence over government and remains so to this day in some limited forms. Remember what it says. It's going to be part firm, part strong, and part fragile. And that is exactly the way we see the world today in a global sense. It's strong in the sense that we have military powers like the United States, China, and Russia that can destroy the world many times over. I was laughing. I was having a conversation with somebody, and they were completely freaked out over North Korea's nuclear weapons programs. And I said, well, okay, let's give them that maybe they have 10 or 15 nuclear weapons that they have managed to kind of cobble together over the last few decades enough plutonium to, to make a couple of bombs. Let, let's say they do have that. Let's say they've got 50. I said, do you have any idea of what our Trident submarines can do if they parked off the coast of any country? They have 24 missile launch tubes. Each one of those carries a minimum of four or five warheads, can carry as many as 10 or 12. We could literally put 480 nuclear warheads on any country by parking a submarine off the coast. So we've been able to have lots of power for a very long time. This is not new technology. We developed the Polaris missile system, which is the first of those submarine-launched missiles uh, back in the late 50s, early 60s. And so there is a sense that the world has progressed to where people kind of sort of have to get along together, but they're not really getting along together because we can still kind of destroy each other and so when you look at the world, how does the world compare to what Daniel said would happen when finally the kingdom of the final king is in its infancy? We're in that age of grace. We're in that final kingdom. Now, we are not at the end of that final kingdom yet, but that kingdom started when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, the final kingdom came into view. And so 
If you were to look at the Roman Empire in 86, about 364, there were, there were two divisions of the Roman Empire. You had the Western Roman Empire with its capital in Rome, and you had the Eastern Roman Empire with its capital in Constantinople. Those things were finally put together under, under Emperor Constantine. And so we, in essence, had a Christian, completely Christian, world at that point in time if you want to look at it that way if you were in the roman world you were supposed to be following the roman religion as a part of the prophetic portion that's this end that we see here this mixed iron and clay uh, those toes that we'll find out uh, later uh, are, are part of the plan that god has that goes along with those 10 horns of revelation 17 and so uh, as you look at this plan unfold, it's interesting to me because there's a picture here of an everlasting kingdom. There's a picture of a kingdom that will not have an end. And so this fifth kingdom, so we have Babylon, we have Media Persia, we have Greece, we have Rome, and then we have this mixed kingdom. But it says during the time that that kingdom has its infancy, there is going to be a stone that's going to come down and it's not going to be cut with human hands. It's going to be from somewhere else. Could that possibly be the child that was born and the son that was given? I think that may be a reference pre-incarnation to the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, I believe that it, that it does. And, and so we're getting some views of the world all the way from Babylon to today, to some degree. And so this 10-nation confederacy that will rise up, these toes, um, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to find that we're, we're going to see a prediction of the coming of Messiah. And so that time that this is all happening, this head of gold is going to fade out. He's already been told that. Um, we, we can absolutely see uh, what comes next. Notice what it says, verse 44, in the time of those kings. In the time of what kings? All of those kings. In other words, from the time that these words are spoken to the end of those kingdoms, God is going to establish his kingdom on earth. And that kingdom is not going to be destroyed. It's not going to be left to other people. In other words, no kingdom will surpass it. For all of the crazy stuff that's going on in the world, if you're here tonight, you're in Christ Jesus, you're part of an everlasting kingdom. Amen? A kingdom that will not end. No matter what happens to this earth, no matter what happens to you personally, you are in the kingdom that will never end. One day you're going to step out of time, which God created for us in the beginning, and you're going to step into eternity, which is his eternal kingdom. And that particular kingdom is really the focus here, ultimately. When you look at the very last days, or what we would call the end times, in Revelation chapter 13, we see the rise of this beast that comes out of the sea and that beast exercises power over all the earth. It's interesting that Daniel knew that there would be a consortium of nations in the very last days that would come together, wouldn't quite agree one with another, but for the purpose of rising up against this one last world kingdom, they would somehow find some allegiance and some alliance. And so it appears that the thing that the Antichrist ultimately will thrive on when he does come on the scene 
is that he will thrive on the fact that the world is adverse to the kingdom that will not ever end. What's going on in our world right now? The world is adverse to the kingdom that will never end. Your, your pastor has been officially banned from, from, as far as I can tell, as far as the State Department knows, ever going to India, ever. Why? Because I was going to tell him about Jesus. You're not allowed to do that in India. India was part of the British Empire. It was one of the most Christian places on the face of the planet. It is now one of the least Christian places on the face of the planet. It's going backwards. Here in the United States of America, during the 1960s and 70s, about 83% of all Americans professed some version, some form of Christian faith. You know what it is today? It's less than 65. It's going the wrong way. Your Bible says in the last days that there will be a falling away. And that falling away is going to precede the rise of this kingdom this final consortium of partially iron and partially clay, this group of nations that will get together that will finally say, you know what, we're done with this Christian thing. Let's get together and have a world religion. On comes the, the Antichrist. What's the first thing he does? He makes a peace treaty with Israel. He unites somehow the world and the Jewish people. And right now, that doesn't seem like it could possibly happen, amen? But your Bible says that is what's going to happen. And so it speaks of this rock that's going to be cut without human hands, that's going to descend, and it's going to crush, in essence, the people who have gathered together to attempt to overthrow God's kingdom, the fifth kingdom, in other words. It's going, to be attempt, it's going to be an attempt by man to rule himself. Now, as we look at the world today, that is exactly what's going on. I do believe we're in the very last throes uh, of this final world kingdom that will be here before the, the Lord raptures his church home, before he comes again, and before the millennial reign of Christ. And so the word used here, Nabah, is, is, a, is a picture that is constantly used of the Lord himself. Uh, it, it's that picture that uh, the stone that the builders rejected that became the, the cornerstone or the capstone. It's used in, Matthew when, or in, in Matthew's gospel in chapter 21, 1 Peter 2 uses it in the same way. And so the rock or stone has come. The king of kings, the lord of lords, has, has already landed on earth, amen? And man, did he bust up everything. And he's still busting up everything. You know, you can say almost anything, but don't mention the name of Jesus. You can do almost anything, but don't talk about Jesus. Connie and I were laughing. We're, I don't even remember what it was. We were watching, I think we were watching part of the Dodger game or something before I came back to church this afternoon. And we're looking at these commercials. We're going, did we really just see what we just saw? You know, so you, you can say anything on television. But if you were to get on television and tell people that Jesus saves, there is no way that, that, that commercial, that commercial is not getting on television. That would be ruled hate speech. 
But you can say all kinds of other vile, disgusting things. Oh, that's right. It was a pill that you can take to protect yourself if you want to be homosexual and not get AIDS. So you can advertise that. But not that most of the work that's going on right now in the Bahamas for relief is churches. I don't want to tell anybody about that. Daniel sees the future. Zechariah the prophet in the 6th century, just almost this exact same time, slightly later, describes the arrival of that rock in a future sense because he says on that day in Zechariah 14, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley and half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Christ's kingdom is a mountain. It's still a mountain. It was a mountain when he said to Telestai, it's finished, it's still a mountain. And some people choose not to believe that that kingdom has come. Some people choose to believe that this is not literal. Some people choose to believe that the rapture of the church is not going to happen. Some people choose to believe uh, that somehow th- this kingdom is, is figurative, that it, it just simply exists in the heart of every human being who loves the Lord and always has. The problem is the Bible says otherwise, and it very clearly says otherwise. If you were to talk to some of our brothers and sisters who we would call amillennialists, those that believe that there is no millennial reign of Christ or covenant theologians, uh, you, you would find them talking about the spiritual nature of this kingdom as it exists in a human being. But what's Daniel talking about? Is Daniel talking about just a spiritual kingdom? Is he talking about a literal kingdom and a whole bunch of them? Is he talking about world history or is he talking about something ethereal that you know, maybe is going to happen uh, at some point in time internal through several specific rulers? No, he's talking about literal kings, literal kingdoms. And so if he's talking about literal kings and literal kingdoms beginning with Nebuchadnezzar, there's going to be a literal king and a literal kingdom for the last one as well. He makes no differentiation in this dream as, okay, these four, those are literal. This, this is Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece, and, and Rome. But this last kingdom, this is just kind of, it's in your heart. No, there's a real king and a real kingdom, and the real king is coming again. That's the story that actually we pick up throughout this amazing book as we move forward. And I want you to notice something. This is not a gradual thing. Nowhere in here does Daniel say, well, you know, it's, it's going to last for thousands and billions of years. It, 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 that's not what he says. He literally says, these things will successively follow one right after another. Uh, and guess when the rock fell? During the Iron Kingdom. And it smashed it. And in fact, it smashed it so hard that the kingdom itself gave in to Messiah, gave in to the king. Didn't fully do it, but it became uh, Christianized in that sense because his kingdom was greater than the Roman kingdom that was governed by the Caesars and the Roman Senate. 
And so I want to speak to you just a little bit about why I believe that this everlasting kingdom is, is not only future, this is spoken of in scripture in such a way that I believe it's literal. That I believe that we have a waiting uh, not only the, us who believe in the Lord, the, what we would call the rapture of the church uh, and the rise of the Antichrist and all those things that are going to happen because the apostasy that we see right now is very clear to me. Somebody came to me and said, well, you know, we just, we just really need to make sure we get a victory in all these things so that we can bring Christ's kingdom on earth. The church is never going to bring Christ's kingdom on earth. Christ is going to bring Christ's kingdom on earth. The Bible does not teach that the church has victory over the world. The Bible teaches that Christ has victory over the world and that we have victory in him. So individually, we're overcomers. But there's no place where the church actually is going to take over the world and we're going to have a theocracy. That's already been tried and it didn't work. And in fact, the Jewish people for a time uh, also had a theocracy and it also did not work. So what does the Bible actually teach with this regard? It teaches that this present age that we live in is going to end with apostasy and rebellion. That the very last days of mankind's sojourn here on earth before the Lord comes for his church are going to be some of the worst days in human history. Because the world is going to turn against the Lord. There in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2, it becomes very, very, very clear. Lawlessness will rise. That, that spirit that is against the Lord will rise. People will become intolerant of the church. That will be on the rise. And the church has been on this earth for 2,000 years. And we have not conquered what we would call lawlessness. We haven't conquered the, the unbeliever's sovereignty over this world. We've not taken every single land. Now, make no mistake, we should be preaching the gospel like never before. We need to, the, our dying breath, preach Christ. But the Bible clearly states that as we head towards the very last days, things are going to get a little dicey. But here's the good news. First Thessalonians, there in chapter five, verse nine, God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath. And so when you look at the book of Revelation, describing the end of all these earthly kingdoms, when the church is taken home, and when the tribulation ensues, the Antichrist rises up, makes first a peace treaty with the entire world, especially with Israel, and then reveals his colors, and everything breaks out in rebellion on this earth, the church isn't going to be here. Our job is now. It will not be to bring the, the kingdom of our God to this earth. Jesus himself says that he is going to come back. Revelation 19 and 20 describe this in some detail, that when he comes the second time, he is going to come as the king of kings and lord of lords. 
Right now, he's allowed mankind to be disobedient. He's allowed mankind to have a little bit of rule that's strong and a little bit of rule that's weak. He's allowed mankind to have a little bit of say in the world's governance, if you will. But the wrath of God actually begins, if you read your Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, really into chapter 6, but in chapter 5, you can see the beginnings of it, all the way to chapter 19, your Bible says that only the Lord himself is able to unloose that wrath. The Lord himself is able to bring about the very last days. It isn't going to be mankind's doing. We're not going to suppress evil through what we do while we're here on this earth. It is going to get so bad that Jesus himself is going to come back. And your Bible says, who is worthy to undo the scroll? It is only the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is not the church. And so one of the reasons I believe the church is not even here is the church has no part from Revelation 5 to Revelation 19, which is the pouring out of God's wrath on this earth. That ends with the church actually coming back from heaven. So when you read the rapture account there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, notice what it says. It says, we who are alive and remain will meet him not on this earth, but in the air. When he comes the second time for the second coming, he's coming back to earth to put his feet down on the Mount of Olives and split it in two as the Nabah, as the ruling king, as the stone who smashes everything that rises up against him. And so that day is still future. It says from there that there will be a thousand-year reign of that king on this earth that will culminate with the final battle, the battle that, that we call the, the final stages of the Gog and Magog conflict, which will end with this great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. And the Lord asserts in, in Revelation 20 some six times that, that this kingdom is a thousand-year-long kingdom. Why is that important? Because Daniel said that these are literal kingdoms. And if we are in that kingdom that is partially iron and partially clay, and there is an end to that that your Bible describes as the rock coming back and smashing every earthly kingdom, that kingdom's yet future. Your Bible says that kingdom is a thousand years long. And so I believe that the Lord is going to rule on this earth for 1,000 years in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and he will rule as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords of that final fifth kingdom. Daniel's giving us a view into the future. Satan's going to be bound during those 1,000 years. And sometimes people will say, well, you know, that, that term's never used. Yes, it is. Psalm 90, 1,000 years is used to be understood as 1,000 years. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, same thing, 1,000 years. Second Peter chapter 3, 1,000 years. And the reason we know it's 1,000 years is because it's compared to that of a day. In other words, the 1,000 years is like an unto God to a day. 
So he's talking about a thousand years being equal to a day. So you can't have it both ways. It can't not be a thousand years and it be a day. Because what does that make a day if a thousand years isn't real? So I believe that as we get towards the end of this time, that Daniel got a little glimpse into our future. Our future. He's saying, you're going to see the rise of globalism. You're going to see the rise of people trying to work together to do away with the kingdom that is the kingdom that God established when the rock came the first time. Because Jesus is the rock, amen? That's his name for himself, by the way. As we think about that and we look at our world, if the world is going away from the Lord and is doing so precipitously, and the Bible says that there's going to be an end to that ability for the world to do that, Daniel says that kingdom is going to get smashed by the rock, then Scripture's reminding us we're kind of out on the end of the timeline. You start adding in all the specific details that the rest of the book of Daniel has and Zechariah has and, and Ezekiel has and Isaiah has. And, and as you look at the world through a biblical lens, you start going, you know, I kind of think we're probably not going to have as many victories as we are. We're going to see the world turning away from the Lord. The world's turning away from the Lord. That doesn't make us hopeless, by the way, because we know who wins in the end. Amen. You could be alive and remain, and all of a sudden there's going to be two people at a mill. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left. There's going to be two people in the field. One's going to be taken, one's going to be left. It's going to happen in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The church is out of here. But your Bible says, and Daniel alludes to it, that there's going to be one last final world kingdom where the world's going to say, you know, we're kind of doing this the right way. We're, we're, we're kind of getting together now. But seemingly, it's not going to actually work all that well. Anybody have a little bit of a history of the UN? Has that worked out very well? Mm-mm. No, it hasn't. How about the World Bank? Nope, hasn't worked too well. How about the EU? Hasn't worked very well. No attempt of mankind for global rule has ever worked and it will never work but we will keep trying until the Lord comes for his church so the fact that we're so invested in globalization right now is a sign to me that we are very close to the Lord coming and getting his kids that makes me really excited by the way because when that thousand years are over after the Lord takes his church home deals with sin read Joel chapter 2 and 3 if you want to know why the Lord's coming back again, Joel 2 and 3. Because of what they did to the Jewish people, what they did to God's land, and it says very clearly it's God's land, he gave it to Israel. How they treated the Jewish people, how the world treated the Jewish people is the thing that precipitates the return of the Lord. So when you keep your eyes on the lens that is Israel, when you watch Israel and see how the world is responding to Israel, whenever it looks really grim for Israel, Look up. 
Because the Bible says once they come back into the land, they will never again be removed from that land until the Lord removes the church. So if that ever looks like it's happened, pack your bags. Get ready to go home. And I'm not predicting when it's going to happen. I'm telling you what the Bible says. When the thousand years are over, Revelation 20 says Satan's going to be released from prison. He's going to go out to deceive the nations to the four corners of the earth. They're going to gather together one more time against the king of kings. And then your Bible says the end will come. And Satan's going to finally be thrown into the pit. Until that time, Satan's going to have a measure of rule. So it should not surprise Christians that things are a little crazy here on this earth. That we keep making laws that are anti-God, that are anti-Christ in that sense. This should not surprise the church. It flabbergasts me sometimes to hear the responses of Christians to the things that are going on in the world as, as if, well, you know, we should, we should be past that. No, the Bible says in retrograde spirituality will actually decrease in the world. We are actually going to go the wrong way. We're not going to go the right way. There will be a peak where, where the world gets evangelized, but after that, it's a downhill slope to the end. So when you see things getting really bad, that's when you get really busy about your father's business. So for me, I look at the world, I go, I'm pretty excited about this time. I'm not worried about it because I know who wins in the end. Amen? You know, people say, oh, well, what if so-and-so gets an office? I have people talk to me about these things all the time. They'll ask me, well, what if so-and-so gets elected? My well, last time I looked, they're not God. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I'm grateful for some of the things that have transpired in our political system. We've made some progress, but it's never going to progress all the way to where all the problems are solved because the Bible says so. Daniel gives us a bit of knowledge here that we need to hang on to. And so Nebuchadnezzar now makes a declaration, verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded they should present an offering and incense to him. In other words, he's saying, you got it going on. And the king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods. He says, you, you told me the dream. And because you can tell me the dream, it's very, very smart on Nebuchadnezzar's, because if Daniel can't tell him the dream, then he can't tell him the interpretation. He nailed the dream. Because all Nebuchadnezzar had to say, well, that's, what I, that's not what I saw. So we know that God spoke to Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar verifies that fact. Truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. In other words, the master of kings, the revealer of secrets. Since you could reveal this secret, there's no way you could know this unless somebody that's bigger than me told you. This is way beneath my, this is way above my pay grades where that stuff came from. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon. And the chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. And also Daniel petitioned the king. And he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. To sit in the gate of the king was the highest, most exalted place that you could be in the palace. You had to get through Daniel to get to the king. 
In other words, he's basically saying, if you can get past Daniel, then you can talk to me because Daniel is the greatest man in the kingdom. That's what happens when we, when we listen to the Lord. And there's two great presuppositions in the Bible. Two great presuppositions in the Bible. One of them, when you read the Bible, God exists. You know why I know that? Very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God. That is a presuppositional statement that God is. In the beginning, God. That God was before everything. He was before time itself. And so that's a presupposition. The second thing is, and this is also because of what the Bible declares, the whole purpose of the Bible is God revealing himself to us. We would not have it. It wouldn't exist. If God was not trying to communicate to us and giving us things like this to where we could look at world history from a book that was written in 605 BC and see that Daniel had a view of world history in successive kingdoms, including up into and including our day and time, that there would be a consortium of peoples and nations that got together that would be partially soft and partially hard, that would try and gather together, but they would not stick together. How Daniel could have known that, unless exactly what Nebuchadnezzar says here is true, Daniel, your God is the God of gods. Your Lord is the Lord of kings. And so whatever you say, I'm sticking with that. And, and so as I look at these things, they just so encourage my faith. So when I, when I go, that's one of the people ask me, well, how come you, you know, how, why do you get National Geographic? Because I want to know what the world has to say about what's going on in our world. I want to know what the world is thinking so I can go, what does my Bible say? And what does the world say? And I go, let's look and see which one's correct. So I read National Geographic. It doesn't affect me. I read Smithsonian Magazine. I love the science in it. Because every time I, I, I do those types of things, that endeavor, I go back to those presuppositions. God exists. And he's been communicating to me. And so when I look at his communication, and then I look at the world, when I look at my science, when when I look at the scientific world, I go, you know what? God knew a few things before man did. Because he told us what scientists would find out a long long time before they found it out. And so it builds my faith. And so the reason that I believe we must study these prophetic books is because just like Nebuchadnezzar, we want to make sure that we're following after the God of heaven. We, we want to make sure that this God whose name is Yahweh, the God of heaven that reveals himself to Israel, that, that acknowledges and take this to heart, as Deuteronomy said, there is a God in heaven and the earth is below. There is no other. That if that God is who he says he is. And that God authored these words, which I don't know where you get information like this unless it comes from someplace else. You know, so if E.T. dialed it in, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure if God gave himself, uh, gave us this message from himself, and we can verify it, then I wander around going, you know what? God spoke to me. Did it through Daniel the prophet. Did it through Zechariah the prophet. He's doing it through his word tonight. And so as Daniel concludes this chapter, surely he says there in verse 47, your God 
is the God of, God of gods. That's an outward confession. That, that's the most powerful person on the planet at the time going, Daniel, your God is the God of gods. That's what happens when we stick to our guns, family. That's what happens when we stand when the world says bow. When we just continue to do what God asks us to do, God is obligated to be our defense. You you see, if God hadn't come through in this passage, we wouldn't be here tonight. If God hadn't spoken truth to Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar heard that truth, can you imagine what Nebuchadnezzar is going to tell other people about Daniel's God? Now, he may not believe in Daniel's God in the way that he needs to believe in Daniel's God, but can you imagine the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar the king about Daniel's God? I ask a question, none of my own people could do it, but Daniel could. And Daniel claims to have a relationship with the God of gods. So whatever he's got, that's the only place you can get it. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And so it's a picture of who we are in Christ, amen? We have info from outside of space and time because God exists and he wants us to know him. He reveals himself to man, so he sends us information that's from outside of our own space-time dimension. In other words, we we live in this material world that's defined by matter, space, time, and energy. So as you look at your world, and you ask yourself, well, what does the Bible say? And you find out the Bible is 100% accurate. All that happens to your faith is you go, man, I know the God of gods. I know the King of kings. I know the Lord of lords. He spoke to me. He told me the truth. And when I look at my world, what he said was true. And from there, Daniel basically gets advanced to the highest place in the kingdom, showered with gifts made ruler over Babylon. And and honestly, this is a picture of us because one day we're going to inherit the king's kingdom, amen? So what happens when you bear testimony of the king of kings, the Lord of lords, when you give that testimony with your own life, then ultimately God is going to reward you with the kingdom as well because we inherit everything that is the king's. Remember that. You, you You have an earthly kingdom, That's the spiritual one that we're in right now. But you have a heavenly kingdom and that kingdom is still waiting you. So one day you're gonna sit at the gate of the king. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and the encouragement it is to us. Lord, that from outside of our space and time, the life that we live, that you authored these words to Daniel the prophet. Lord, you spoke the interpretation of this dream to him and as he received it and spoke it forth to us or it's been recorded and passed down through history, uh, including the date that, that you, Jesus, would come into Jerusalem there in Nisan in April. Lord, your, your word declares that time and it's, it's found there in Daniel chapter nine. And so, Lord, we are so grateful that, that you would uh, let us have these truths about you, that you do exist and you do speak to us. And so, God, we, we rest in that. And, Lord, the world tries to steal that from us, tries to tell us we're 
we're loony to have a relationship with you because you don't exist. Uh, Lord, we, we profess you not only exist, but you love us. And you sent Jesus to offer us salvation by grace through faith. And Lord, for those of us that have received that tonight, Lord, we just are so grateful that you stepped out of eternity and into time and came and gave your life for us. And we just give our lives back to you. Make us bold witnesses in these last days. Encourage us and strengthen us, Lord, in our walks with you. In Jesus' name, amen.